This is SMDC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 18 of The High Ground, U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command's official podcast. I'm Ronald Bailey, a.k.a. Beetle. It's late October 2023, and this month marks a very special occasion in SMDC and missile defense history as the 20th anniversary of the activation of SMDC and the Colorado Army National Guard's 100th Missile Defense Brigade, one of SMDC's four major subordinate elements. For two decades now, this multi-component Army National Guard Brigade has protected the nation 24-7, 365 against the threat of the most powerful weapons on Earth, nuclear-armed intercontinental ballistic missiles. For this episode, we're going back to learn about the earliest days of the brigade and to some extent its major subordinate element, the Alaska Army National Guard's 49th Missile Defense Battalion, because their histories are so closely intertwined. We'll reach back to a time a little before the brigade was even activated in 2003, and certainly before the ground-based mid-course defense system they operate was declared operational in 2004. We'll largely confine our discussion to those earliest days, through the events leading up to and through 2006, when the system and its operators were placed under the utmost scrutiny. We had the good fortune to speak with four individuals, all now retired from the Army, who played critical roles in the brigade and battalion's earliest days. They are Sergeant Major William Ray, who served both at the brigade and battalion, starting out as a missile crew member, progressing to become the battalion and brigade's headquarters company first sergeant, and finishing up as the brigade's operations sergeant major. Command Sergeant Major Russell Hamilton, who served in a variety of capacities, including crew member, master gunner, operations sergeant major, and eventually the brigade's command sergeant major. Lieutenant Colonel David Meekins, who served as the senior tactical director for Alpha Crew at the brigade's missile defense element, later becoming the brigade's S3 operations officer, and in an interesting twist, ended up as a missile defense officer at NORAD NORTHCOM, continuing to work with the brigade's missile crews. And finally, Colonel Edward Hildreth, who served as the battalion's second and later the brigade's fourth commanding officer, who will offer some unique insight from his perspective in those roles. Fun fact, I actually served with all these fine NCOs and officers at one point or another at the battalion and brigade, and was actually the headquarters battery commander at the 100th Brigade when Colonel Hildreth was in command there. All of that out of the way, to kick off, Sergeant Major Ray tells us where many of the first GMD missile crews and staff came from. Remembering that prior to October 2003, neither the unit or the GMD system had been activated and no predecessor to either existed at that time. It's also important to note that as a National Guard unit, soldiers had to volunteer to join the unit. They couldn't simply be assigned as soldiers in a regular Army unit are. Well, the first couple batches of uh, soldiers that came on to do the GMD mission uh, was coming from... National Guard units that were air defense. So you had North Dakota, you had South Carolina, Florida, you had New Mexico, you even had Alabama. All those air defense units throughout the country, they were pulling from to come up to Colorado to do the GMD mission. 
Once a part of the unit, Command Sergeant Major Hamilton describes the early difficulties moving the soldiers around among the three GMD units and states out of operational necessity and for the soldiers' career progression. Kind of think about where we came from. We started with a, a organization that was split across three different guard states, right? With Colorado, uh, with the 100th Missile Defense Brigade, and Alaska with the 49th Missile Defense Battalion, and California with Detachment 1 of the Brigade. And the uniqueness about the National Guard is you are assigned as a soldier within that state National Guard. And yes, the state can PCS you other places within that state's boundaries. But me being able to take a California soldier and PCS him permanent change of station into Alaska, something unheard of in a guard capacity. But when you have this very finite skill set of missile defenders, that I need to be able to transition soldiers between these three states for the longevity of the brigade, for one, but also for the development of the individual soldier is another. We have to have that capability. And so this, this was a lot of, lot of paradigm shift for the National Guard. They, they had seen it on some other scales through, through some of their units, like some of their special forces units, but never really applied it to grassroots MTO type of units. And so I kind of walked into this as, as the operations sergeant major, helping out command sergeant major Rhodes as he ventured down this path, trying to get the three states to come together and understand that it was not only good for their states, for their well-being, but also good for those units and for those individual soldiers. As the battalion and later brigade commander, Colonel Hildreth discusses his role in the early days, understanding and developing relationships with higher headquarters organization, those outside the brigade itself. I think first and foremost, appreciating the com uh, command structure of how the, the mission is executed is paramount. And, and so that was a learned behavior and appreciating the Army Service Component Command, Space Missile Defense Command, their role under STRATCOM, to man and equip and train, the operational aspects of U.S. NORTHCOM and their responsibilities to defend the homeland and, and our, our role in that in critical role. And oh, by the way, the soldiers that reside on mission at Fort Greeley and Colorado Springs and California, you know, they belong to the, the, the adjutant generals of those states and that relationship is sacrosanct. And so I spent a lot of time and energy understanding those relationships, building those relationships, ensuring those general officers had confidence in the leadership of the battalion, because uh, at the end of the day, their support was critical in, in the mission, ensuring that we were manned properly, that we had the right equipment, that we had the right people and the right training. And so again, something I learned, not the hard way, but it was certainly a learned behavior that was important just for me, but for the follow-on commanders after me. Switching the conversation to a more operational focus, Lieutenant Colonel Meekins highlights what those very early days were like for missile crews, preparing themselves and the GMD system for its eventual activation. Well, I was there before the brigade was the brigade. So I arrived in 2003, March of 2003. I was selected as a director and then everybody started coming in and we started the GMD course. We had a uh, basic course, then we had about four or five months of just training, doing runs, and then we had an advanced course. And so we would uh, do runs for months, uh, just uh, training. And so I would guess or estimate that we probably did a thousand runs before we even took crew on 1 October 2004. 
Expanding on that last bit from Meekins, Sergeant Major Ray describes just how many training runs, that is simulations, the average crew did during a shift and the impact that intense level of training had on the operators. When we were on our crew cycle, we would do at least five or six runs per shift. So you you knew how the system was going to behave. It was muscle memory. You knew exactly what to do and you didn't even really have to think about it. As mentioned before, GMD operations and the GMD system itself was brand new. That meant a steep learning curve for everyone. For their part, the soldiers needed to understand the system, determine roles and responsibilities for each crew member, and the tactics, techniques, and procedures necessary to conduct engagements. Equally as important was the development of the GMD system and its fire control software. There was a lot of work to ensure the system itself worked and provided information to the soldiers on crew to make decisions in real time. Meekins explains this in detail. It was a very interesting time when the missile defense element in the fire direction center were conducting training scenarios with graybeards. And what I mean by graybeards, these are retired admirals and general officers. And we would have exercises for the first couple of years. And the whole point was looking at the soldiers and how they were fighting the system. The TTPs or the shot doctrine that came from the United States Northern Command. Well, what would happen is we would do these training scenario runs and then we would all would walk into the uh, briefing room at Shriver and it was like a murder board and you would have all these graybeards and then 500 contractors sitting behind them and asking you, Colonel Meekins, why'd you do this? Uh, Sergeant so-and-so, why'd you do that? The focus changed from the crews and being concerned about crews versus the system because the crews could fight. And so they started worrying more about the system. The crews will do what they need to do uh, to engage the threat. And so you had the initial 10 crews, five at at Trevor Air Force Base, five at Fort Greeley, had a lot of input in where the system was and how it moved out uh, in the first couple of years. Next, Ray and Meekins explain how and just how much the crew's input changed future builds of the fire control system software. So the warfighter input, there was a procedure for it. If you felt that the system needed to do this or you wanted to see this, you could actually put up an official request to the contractors that worked on the system. So on later builds of the software, you would see what you had requested. I can tell you now that it's very different. I was just recently at Fort Greeley and was able to sit uh, with the crews up at Fort Greeley and how they are now fighting. And the vocabulary is different. The actions are different. Uh, But it's still the same fight. But I'll tell you that I am so impressed with the crews today and 
the number of threats they are able to uh, engage and how they form as a unit. Largely unnoticed the first couple of years of its existence by most within the Department of Defense, news organizations, and certainly the public at large, an event in 2006 catapulted the brigade and the GMD system to global awareness. Just having taken command of the 49th Battalion in Alaska a few months prior, Hildreth explains. I remember that well. I remember the experience well. You know, it reminded me of the, you're never given the problem you ask for. And so when I took command in mid-May of 2006, I certainly never envisioned that shortly after that, over probably the next 60 days, the world and the battalion would watch carefully the preparations on the Taepodong 2 launch site in North Korea as they prepared to launch a potential, you know, nuclear threat. You, know, you, you certainly don't know, and it's not something that you take lightly. And so uh, that quickly... I believe, was a turning point in terms of both readiness, commitment to the mission, and uh, I think our soldiers' laser focus on how important what we were charged with doing uh, for the nation. And so uh, I remember that time and certainly won't forget when that was launched uh, on July 4th of 2006. And thankfully, uh, we were ready. The missile failed and went into the Sea of Japan, but it demonstrated that our adversaries threaten us and continue to do so even today here, you know, 17 years later. Hamilton explains events leading up to that 2006 North Korean ICBM launch from his perspective in Colorado. So thinking about when America and really the world kind of figured out what GMD was, uh, we were doing a lot behind the scenes, getting, getting this unit, getting this system ready for operations to meet President Bush's you know, National Presidential Directive uh, and SPD-23, wanting this system operational by 2004 and flipping the lights on in the MDE and the FDC on 1 October and, and going operational. Even to that point, still a lot going on behind the scenes that the rest of the world didn't know about. You know, interceptors going into ground at Fort Greeley, radars suddenly coming online that have been supporting other missions within North American Aerospace Defense Command and Northern Command legacy systems going back to the Cold War that were now also supporting the GMD mission. But then the eye-opener to the world came with actions taken by North Korea. And, and to kind of back that up a little bit, 4th of July 2006, North Korea launched a Taepodong 2. Four or five months prior to that, I would say, and we all know anybody that's watched anything military-related uh, give you plenty of examples throughout history, but we all sat in intel briefs, and you know that intel isn't always perfect, but we sat in intel briefs that said it'll be four or five years until we see an ICBM effort out of North Korea. Four or five months later, North Korea launched the Taepodong 2 for the first time. Now, fortunately, that launch ended in failure, but I can tell you there were soldiers ready that very moment to take action against that threat. Fortunately, you know, the, the system did not end up coming into play. And I say fortunately, not because I don't believe in the system. I absolutely believe in the system. I say fortunately because I, I don't want the United States to ever undergo such a threat. 
Meekins then explained his perspective while assigned temporary duty to monitor and control the GMD interceptor missiles and other assets at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California during the summer of 2006. Uh, the, the first Tapodong to launch was a very interesting time from my perspective. The brigade commander was rotating soldiers out to uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base. And at that point in time, I had been rotated as the uh, officer in charge of our little group. That little group consisted of two people, myself and a uh, non-commissioned officer. And then when we started getting information about Tapodong launch, things sort of revved up pretty quickly. And it was funny because no one knew what was going on outside of the missile defense community. So it was same old, same old every day watching the public maneuver around. And then at one point, I drive outside of Vandenberg Air Force Base and I saw four vans with antennas and satellite TVs and everybody sitting there asking about missile defense. But at Vandenberg, we were basically locked in a room, me and another guy for about a month just between us doing 24 7, 365 operations. And we controlled the ground safety device of the, the GBIs at Vandenberg. And I can tell you that uh, um, on July 4th, when everything sort of kicked up, it was a uh, it was an interesting day. People don't know this, but the actual launch corresponded with the space shuttle when it launched on July 4th. So I'm watching, I had a computer and I was listening to NASA and all of a sudden I saw a uh, the space shuttle take off, but I'm hearing stuff from NORAD Northcom. And so it was very interesting. I'm thinking, well, what's that? The space shuttle. Oh, that wasn't the space shuttle. <laughs> and so I have to tell you, I was excited and nervous at the same time. And the only reason why I was nervous, not nervous about the soldiers, but nervous about what this could really mean if we, if we had to engage this threat. But I've always told when I'm briefing people that in the Army, you wear a combat patch on your right shoulder. I never wanted to have a combat patch from the brigade because if I ever had a combat patch, the world had a bad day. The focus chiefly being on the missile crews, the security mission performed by military police soldiers at Fort Greeley, Alaska, is often overlooked when discussing GMD operations. Like the brigade and battalion, they too are a one-of-a-kind unit in the Army. Hildreth explains the vital role performed by the 49th Battalion's GBI Security Company, known within the unit simply as Alpha Company MP. I think it's important that we spend a little time talking about it, and, and, and I know this for a fact. You know, most uh, distinguished visitors, uh, whether they were congressional staffers or, or, or members or, or are senior military leaders across the combatant commands, don't appreciate the security mission until they visit, appreciate how large the missile defense complex is, how sophisticated the systems that reside there are and why they're important. And that, that became the center of gravity for 
both defense of the missile defense complex, but also giving the crews the ability to perform their mission, knowing that they're doing it in a secure environment, that they have 110% concentration on that mission. And so both those missions are not mutually exclusive. They're supporting uh, one another. And so I was really proud of the caliber of, of the military police force and, and especially the non-commissioned officers, some of the best that I've interacted with in my time in the Army and, and just a, a great group of professionals. Next, I ask Hamilton, Ray, and Meekins to talk about the sustainment of 24-7, 365 operations, particularly the missile crews, for what is now going into their second decade. Understanding that there are no other units to take over the mission on a rotational basis like other enduring missions performed by active component or guard units. How did they maintain a bench of crew members and effectively grow their own for so long? Lots of Army units, lots of organizations like to feel that they're unique. But in the case of the 100th and the 49th, there are no other like them, okay? These soldiers have been on mission, you know, myself, my counterparts, as we first came on system back in, even before we went to limited defensive operations in 2003, as you said, flipped the switch and, and we were operational and have sustained that for going on 20 years now. As one brigade, as one battalion, how do you how do you sustain that? Well, part of the goodness in that is, is having it be a predominantly Army National Guard unit where you're not dealing with soldiers in this this very low density MOS who are, are suddenly PCS to Korea. You, you're not dealing with that for the most part. You deal with that some with your active component soldiers, not as much with your guard soldiers. So you're able to sustain it that way. Okay, so you could start out as an E5 on the Fire Direction Center or even an E4 in the Alpha Company MPs at the Fort Greeley. And because you're doing the position and you're there for so long, you could actually work, get promoted and work yourself into new jobs all the way up to the Brigade Command Sergeant Major. When I was the Brigade S3, I felt that the Brigade was a missile defense brigade and everybody needed to be a missile defender. So we sent everybody in the entire brigade to school. Everybody went and then everybody started pulling ship. You had the soldiers in the S1 that went out on crew. Now, what was good was that was that the soldiers that were on crew were able to talk to the S1. And so they under, they knew what was going on in uh, the S1 area. Uh, even you, as the PAO, you went out on crew. So everybody in the entire brigade was a air defender slash missile defender. They then did something even, even more outside the box at battalion, and, and I credit them for it, in that they started to have military police soldiers young sergeants, staff sergeants, first lieutenants who wanted to become missile defense operators. And so they went through the training and transitioned over to becoming missile defense operators so they could perform another vital function within the battalion, ultimately at some point maybe even transition down to brigade, still be a, a uh, missile defense operator down there, and in some cases rotate back to the MPs. And the craziness of that what it really led to was, was the goodness of having some of our young 
uh, NCO missile defenders and officer missile defenders who, while they're in that crew construct, didn't have the troop leading time that you get, you know, in, in other line units within our army. Well, they went out and they, they transitioned to become military police soldiers and led troops on the ground guarding the missile defense complex. I then asked Hildreth if the enduring nature of the mission strained or otherwise caused issues with higher headquarters elements. To the contrary, this is what he had to say about it. Yeah, when, when I was in command, both in 2006 uh, and in 2012, you know, the Army is busy, you know, uh, focused on counterterrorism operations in the Middle East, and there was a lot going on. But I can tell you there was never a wavering of the level of importance and emphasis and leadership provided by our most senior leaders in the military on the mission because, oh, by the way, the threat uh, has never gone away. Uh, and some would say it has increased disproportionately over time. And so uh, I think that that is important. It's critical. And, and it, it is, uh, I think, encouraging to know that that type of leadership mantra is enduring. I followed that up by asking about the multi-component nature of the brigade. GMD soldiers frequently discuss the differences, but in that, advantages of having both National Guard and active component soldiers serve together. Hildreth had a little different take on it. Yeah, I appreciate the question, Ronald, talking about a multi-com- really a multi-component unit there at the brigade you know, with, uh, with soldiers serving uh, both in a Title 32 and Title 10 status. But I always felt like in terms of the mission and and day-to-day operations, that was seamless and transparent. And and what I found was that, uh, you know, we all wear U.S. Army over our heart. And so I really didn't distinguish uh, between the two. And and frankly, I don't think think, uh, the the casual observer would be able to distinguish either. And I actually found that the experiences the AFT component had serving in the mission appreciating what it's like to be a citizen soldier, both, you know, whether in M-Day status or, or in a Title 10 status, I think is very important. And I think they leave there with a much better appreciation and maybe even respect for the National Guard. And so to me, that's, that's valuable, that's priceless as they go and, and move on and potentially become senior leaders within the Army ranks. And so I, I, I think that's a smart design and I think it benefits the Army readiness overall. To follow, I asked Ray and Hildreth about the culture of the 100th Brigade, including the 49th Battalion, and the personality of its soldiers. How did the nature of serving on missile crew and being assigned to a one-of-a-kind unit tasked with the defense of the nation against ICBMs set them apart from other soldiers? Uh, yes. When you spend two days, two swings, two minutes with the same people and you work day in and day out with them, you you create a, a a bond we were always together on crew and then there'd be sometimes we'd have barbecues or we'd have you know just outings that we, we'd sometimes go together because we were always together i'm still very close friends with a couple of the crew members that i first came on board with 15 or 20 years ago that's an intriguing and provocative question to answer and i think i'd answer it this way the uniqueness that you asked about the personality of the battalion, an interesting way to ask that, is the uniqueness of the mission and its importance brought out the best, uh, not only of the defenders in the fire direction center, but of our military police uh, that played a pivotal role in defending the, the missile defense complex. And so 
I think that's how I would describe that the mission, the uniqueness of the mission, the importance of the mission drove a level of competence and seriousness that permeated throughout the battalion. And I would, again, I'm biased, but I would assess the readiness and professionalism of the soldiers that I serve with at the very top uh, of any formation in the Army. Starting to wrap up my interview, I ask each of them to talk about the pride they felt having served in the 100th Brigade. For most, it was an emotional and rather raw moment of the interview. Here's what they had to say. For me, I am most proud of the soldiers and in how they conducted themselves and how they learned. It was amazing watching the soldiers dig into the system and wanting more information. It was very interesting. I've never seen anything like it. And watching and go looking back, you know, that was very, you just didn't do that in the military that much. I mean, you had an operations order and you knew how to do it. For GMD, we were, it was, it could change on a, on a dime. Every day was a different experience. And I think that's why so many soldiers that have been in the brigade and been in the battalion love that job. And it's because of what you do every single day. I mean, there's not very many people that can say what they do in in as far as their input into protecting the United States of America. Yeah, so I'm very proud that that I'm part of that uh, legacy. My most pride is knowing that I was part of history. I was one of five first crew members up at Fort Greeley to man a system that is designed to defend America against ICBM tax. I will always cherish that. I was the first boots on the ground. You know, I would say, as I think back, it's those times in the wintertime, at night, uh, in the missile defense complex uh, with the soldiers, whether it be with an MP and a Humvee or uh, observing a operational readiness exercise in the fire direction center, when it's 35 below zero and the wind's blowing at 40 miles an hour, the fact that you have the type of individuals that would serve in a place like Fort Greeley, Alaska, because they love the mission, they love their country, and it's important to them. And, you know, to think that I got to be a part of that, that's, that's, uh, that's powerful. You know, the Cold War was real to me. You think about the fate of 300-plus million Americans. You know, think about the time when the Cold War ended and there were, all the experts said, well, this is going to be great. Peace is going to break out around the world. Uh, that's not what happened. Peace did not break out around the world. And... I think that led to me wanting to be a part of this unit. And so the fact that I had an opportunity to be a part of a mission like this absolutely fills me with pride. Uh, and, and the people I did it with, uh, that's, that's icing on the cake because they're, they're all great people. Saving the most powerful question for last, I asked Colonel Hildreth to articulate why this all mattered. Was it worth the expense and years of each soldier's life 
to be a part of this unit and this mission. I think to a person that has served, uh, whether at Fort Greeley or at the brigade headquarters, there is no greater calling than to, to defending the nation, because after all, you know, the system's there to provide strategic deterrence for this nation. And so I think, you know, if you remember, I'm looking at the coin right here. Actually, I'm holding it in my hand, sitting at my desk in Washington, uh, where it says, defending the homeland, none shall pass. And I think all of us who have served and have held this coin probably have the best appreciation for why the system's important, why it's necessary, and that I hope we never have to use it but it's because of the men and women who man the system that we're able to say that. Over. To learn more about the 100th Missile Defense Brigade and SMDC's people and missions around the world, join us on the web at www.smdc.army.mil. From the High Ground Podcast, I'm Ronald Bailey. Happy anniversary to the soldiers and families of the mighty GMD Brigade. None shall pass. <laughs>